Welcome again to Peninsula Community Church. What a morning already. So uh, it, it's just good to be together, is it not? This morning, we are doing a little bit of a different turn in our series through Romans. I wanted to do just a little bit of a deep dive into the last two paragraphs of Romans 8 because they speak so clearly to our lives. Uh, next week, we'll put a bow on this series. You'll be glad that some of you, maybe, that uh, you know, backwards through Romans is ending, but we'll try to put all of that together and, and then end with that, that glorious passage at the end of Romans 8. But this morning, Paul reflects on the suffering of Jesus, which leads him to a discussion of the role and the place of suffering in our lives. You undergone any suffering lately? Any trials, any difficulties, heartaches? Then welcome to life led by the Spirit. Sooner or later, all of us will have a reason to ask, why me, Lord? And every person who lives long enough will encounter circumstances that are difficult to explain theologically. Cancer, sudden infant death syndrome, divorce, rape, loneliness. I've learned over the years that there are a million sources of human suffering that produce questions which trouble our soul. And I've learned that you cannot be fooled by all the smiling faces sitting next to you. Everybody comes to church with a, has a story. And that story includes some pain and it includes some suffering and heartache. And you'll find a person next to you that has probably a ton of questions about who God is and what he's doing. Most of us are happy for the most part, but no one gets a free ride in life. And oftentimes there's four ways that we try to deal with suffering and difficulty in our lives. First thing we try to do is, is we deny it. That's where most of us begin. It's kind of that John Wayne mentality. We're going to tough it out. We're going to grit our teeth. We're going to keep smiling, whatever, and nobody's going to know. Never let them see a sweat. We're all like that from time to time. It's pride that makes us pretend that everything going on in our lives is okay, even when it's not. And we pretend like the problem we're facing isn't as big as it really is. We deny it with denial. Second is getting angry. Sometimes we react to difficulty by just getting angry. We get bitter. Sometimes we shake our fist at God. And when you don't deal with that anger biblically, it affects every other relationship in life, including your relationship with God. Some people are, are angry at God for so many years that they wonder why God is so distant, why their prayers are so empty, and why their Christian life isn't much of a life. They're angry. Third, we blame others. It's nobody else's fault. It's a very popular option. We'll use it all of us sooner or later. Because it's never our fault. Suffering's always somebody else's fault. It's, it's my boss or my spouse or, or the economy or the president, you know, whatever. And the fourth way is to accept it. Accepting it, we deal with pain and suffering. It's the final option. Because we take that pain and that suffering and we learn from it. 
We can deny it. We can get angry about it. We can blame somebody else for it. Or we can let God use it in our lives to teach us some things and learn from it. Because either you become a victim or you become a student. And being a student, you ask yourself, well, what am I learning through this difficulty? What's God trying to say for me? What does this painful experience have for me? Now, having said that, I admit, I have a lot of questions that I cannot answer about why bad things happen to good people. Sometimes the reasons are so obvious, but sometimes they are much more obscure. If I had all the time in the world, I couldn't answer all of those questions because some of them simply defy human experience. But here in Romans, Paul takes a step back and he lifts the, the whole concept of the spiritual life and our redemption to a cosmic level. And suffering has a role in that redemptive process. And he's restoring the weak and the strong in their relationships. And God is redeeming just as well what he's doing among them. And in the midst of our struggle is sin. And in the midst of the struggles inside the church is, is a suffering church. But there's hope. Here's the theme of the passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You underline sufferings and you underline glory. Paul invites us, you know, you need to compare those two things. Your suffering and the glory. Most of us see only our suffering. And we're very well aware of those things, the bad that happened to us. But there's another side to the equation. There's glory. And if you could put all the difficulties of your life on one side of the scale, and then the glory that you will know someday, the, the, this will fly off like a feather because this is so significant. The glory is so much heavier than our present sufferings. They're just blown away. And the sufferings of this life, and they are terrible, are not even worth, however, comparing to the greatness of the glory that's going to be revealed within us. That's a revolutionary perspective on life. And if we could ever let that truly grip our soul, what God really has for us is so incomparably worth greater than what we're going through now It'll change the way we look at our problems. And Paul in this text reveals three truths that are unchanging about our suffering. Three unchanging truths that we need to wrestle with today. Number one is this. Our suffering is temporary. Our suffering is temporary. Verse 19 of Romans 8. For the creation waits in eager expectation, cosmic level, for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. 
We live in a frustrating world, right? Nothing works the way it's supposed to work. You buy something and it breaks. You fix it, if you have that skill, and it breaks again. Until finally, you just got to buy it new. Nothing lasts forever. That's, I think, what Paul means when he says creation was subject to frustration. But it's not just creation. It's you and me. We don't work right either. Children can be born with horrible birth defects. We can get cancer. We can get Alzheimer's or AIDS or some other disease that wastes our body away. And if you live long enough, you'll have a stroke or a heart attack or something. Or you grow up senile and they'll put you in a nursing home. That's the future. We're all headed there, unless you're Ida, I guess. Good genetics. Eight, verse 21 speaks of a bondage to decay. Every Tuesday, three trucks come by my house. The first one takes the recyclable waste. The second one is just regular garbage. And the third one is the green waste, which now has all our smelly food waste, right? It really smells wonderful. But the flow of garbage never ends. The more we make, the more we spend. The more we spend, the more we use. The more we use, the more we waste. The more we waste, the more garbage we produce. If you doubt that, let the, truck, let the, the trash uh, collectors go on strike and see what happens to our lovely world. We live in a decaying, frustrating world. But this is not the world that God intended us to live in. It's full of pain and suffering. It's been messed up and knocked out of its natural order by, and kilter because of sin. It doesn't matter whether we're rich or poor. It's the same world we all face. And if you live long enough, you're going to know pain. And you're going to know heartache. And we live in a universe where things run down. You've got to go to the dentist because of tooth decay. Well, someday we're going to put all dentists out of business. No more tooth decay. Because that which causes the decay itself will be removed from the planet. But I have even better news. That which causes heart decay and body decay and mind decay and spiritual decay one day is going to be removed. And the biblical viewpoint on suffering is to say, yes, it's bad. But it's not going to last forever. It's terrible. But this isn't the final story. This isn't the last chapter. Yes, we do suffer. But God has ordained that our suffering is temporary. Something better for us is on the way. Unchanging truth number one. Our suffering is temporary. It's truth number two. Our suffering is educational. Verse 23 not only so, but we also, excuse me, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes what they already, for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. We wait for it 
patiently. Paul says we groan inwardly. We groan inwardly because we're in a job that we hate. We groan because we have unfulfilled dreams. We groan because our bodies break down. We groan because our marriages break up. We groan because our children go astray. We groan because our friends disappoint us. Why does God allow groaning among his children? Why doesn't he do something? Doesn't he know what we're going through? Doesn't he care? And sometimes we begin to question the character of God as if he enjoys seeing his children suffer. And we imagine him you know, laughing at heaven while we weep. But it's not so. He knows what we're going through. The Bible says he allows that pain for a purpose. Verse 24, tell us, you know, he says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Hope in suffering. Patience. That's what he's trying to develop within us. Hope is a settled confidence that's going to look to the future that knows what God knows what he's doing and someday he's going to keep all those promises. And he develops within us patience, the ability to endure this present hardship because we've got hope in the future. So our suffering, there's an element of it which is educational. It teaches us hope. It teaches us patience. Two ways, the only way you can learn those things is through suffering. Because you only hope for that which you do not have. And if you have it, you don't need to hope for it. But if you don't have it, then hope teaches you to wait patiently for it. So what is it that we're waiting for? Paul says we are waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for the day when our bodies will be redeemed. We turn in this old model and we get a brand new one. And in that day, he says, we will be adopted as sons. We will enter into the full legal standing that we have as children, as sons of God. And in this age, we are children of God, but we're living in these decaying bodies. And you can't tell by looking on the outside who's, who's, gonna, who's been adopted as a son and a daughter and who hasn't. Because we look like everybody else. We get sick like everybody else. Our bodies decay like everybody else. And we eventually die like everybody else. But because we are related to Jesus Christ, we will someday be given a body like his, incorruptible, immortal, undying. We don't have it yet, but we eagerly await for that day. Have you ever been in a situation so desperate that you haven't even been able to pray? Have you ever been so emotionally exhausted that you tried to pray and nothing comes out? Have you ever been so afraid or frightened that all you do is, oh God, help me? It's happened to me a few times. Sometimes in counseling, I'm like, man, the problems are so massive. I don't know what to do. Help me. And I took my 12-hour-old child 
in an ambulance. To who knows where? Well, I knew where. But an hour away, it's like, how do you pray? What do you do? Life can be hard. And all you can say is, oh, God, help. And Paul is saying and telling us that in our weakness, when we feel desperate about the things that really matter and we don't know what to say, it's okay to just cry out, oh, God. In our weakness, when we're desperate, the message is don't worry. That's enough that there's, that there's somebody, you know, inside of you who is willing to pray for you. I mean, we know Jesus is in heaven praying for us, but Paul goes a step further in this text. He says, when you come to the moment of complete exhaustion and you can no longer frame the words, don't worry about it. If you cannot speak, the Holy Spirit will speak for you. The Holy Spirit will pray for you because in your weakness, he is strong. And when we lean against the wall of desperation and we cry out to God and we whisper, God, I don't even know what to say. I don't know how to pray. The Spirit comes alongside and he says, it's okay, I'm praying for you. I'll pray for you. And he does. Verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts and knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for, for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That's amazing. Martin Luther read this text and he said, you know, it's a good thing sometimes if we occasionally receive the opposite of what we pray for because that is a sign that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. You're like, what? I mean, we may be praying, God, do this and this and this. And the Holy Spirit's with us, inside us saying, well, you know, Lord, what he means is he really wants you to do this, this, and this because he's got a bigger picture in mind. We pray from our limited weak perspective and the Holy Spirit sort of corrects the prayer so that God's will is always done even in our most wrong-headed prayers and since the Holy Spirit knows what the will of God is and he searches our hearts he is able to pray for us in ways that we don't even know so that God actually does the opposite of what we think now, does that mean our prayers are in vain? Not at all. Does that mean that we shouldn't pray? Not at all. It just shows the, the level of human weakness in our prayers and the limitations of our perspective in, in life. We see in part, the Spirit sees in whole. We see one little piece, but the Spirit sees the big picture. We pray according to the little bit that we can see, and the Spirit prays according to His perfect knowledge and wisdom. Someone said that learning to pray is like a man learning to play the violin. At first, he's not very good. But he finds the schedule of the, of the radio station playing classical music, and he finds out what concertos they're playing. And, and, and he, he buys the, the violin parts to that music, and he begins to practice them. 
And when the tunes come on the radio every afternoon, he begins to play with them. It's painful at first. His mistakes don't change what's coming in, however, over the radio. The concertos continue to roll on in perfect harmony and tempo. And he struggles to change. But he gets better and better every week, year by year. And eventually, he can come to play along with the orchestra as they broadcast those concertos. And he can do it well. And I say, play, excuse me, pray like that. Lots of mistaken notes, lots of groans, but there's progress and joy and encouragement since God is continuing to conduct the perfect heavenly symphony. And the Holy Spirit continues to pray with us. And for the day, we're able to take our place in the divine orchestra. And all along the way, he is with us. He's by our side, a wise and faithful teacher. Suffering's temporary. Suffering can be educational if we'll allow it to be. It will teach us hope. It will teach us patience. There's one more unchanging truth about suffering. Number three, our God is at work. Let's look at 26 again. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we, listen to this, this is interesting, we do not know what we ought to pray for. We don't have a clue. But the Spirit himself intercedes through us wordless, through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. We just looked at that. Verse 28, and we know. We do not know. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He just said we don't know what to pray for. Now he says, well, we know in all things God works for the good. We do not know, and we know. The first concerns the details of what God is doing in our lives. We don't know. Yet we know some things about the fact of God's great plan itself. We do know, you know, he is working things out. He's got a plan. God is at work. And this text tells us three ways that God's at work. First, God's at work for the long haul. So many things in life seem unexplainable. I mean, why does a tornado destroy one house and leave another untouched? Why does one brother seem to just excel in life and somebody else just failure after failure? It's hard. Why did the tumor come back when the doctor said he got it all? I mean, the, the, the list of questions is, is endless. And seen in isolation, they make no sense. If there's a purpose behind such tragedy, we cannot see it. And one danger is that we judge the end by the beginning. Or we judge what we cannot see by what we can see. So that when tragedy strikes, if we can't see the purpose, we assume there isn't one. But the very opposite is true. We ought to judge the beginning by what's coming at the end. And here's where Romans 8.28 gives us some help. Paul says, for we know that all things work together for good. It's, it's a Greek word from which we get the word synergy. 
What's a synergy? Well, it's what happens when two or more elements are put together to form something brand new that couldn't be if, it, if they weren't put together. It's what happens when your wife goes to the kitchen to make soup or stew and she puts all these things you'd never eat by themselves. But once the brew is, it's delicious. And it can come out as the best soup I've ever had. That's called synergy. It's the combination of many elements to produce a positive result. That's what Paul says when, when God causes all things to work together. There's synergy there. And many of the things that make no sense when we see them in isolation are in fact working together to produce something positive in my life. There's a divine synergy in the darkest moments and a synergy that produces something positive. And that good is ultimately produced. It couldn't happen any other way. you got to look at life that way. Don't judge the, the beginning. Don't judge the end by the beginning. Look at the end. Look forward. Judge the beginning. Now I'm all confused. <laughs> judge the end by the beginning. Not the beginning by the end. I don't know. I'm so confused. You've got to have a long-term perspective. That's what this is all about. First thing, ah, forget that part. Edit B. <laughs> Second thing, God is at work to make us like Jesus. Okay, that's the crux of the matter. He says all things work together for good. But what's the good that he's talking about? For most of us, we assume the good is what? Health, happiness, finances, solid life good relationships, money, food on the table, getting to be 100. We think this good is a, is a nice set of circumstances. But that's not necessarily the biblical point of view. And in case you don't have to wonder, you, have, you wonder about what it is, he kind of defines it in the next verse, in verse 29. He says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That kind of makes it clear. God predestined us to what? To a certain end. What's the good? That we would be like Jesus. God's at work in your life to make you like the Savior. He's predestined you to that end. He is working in your life to make that happen. Therefore, anything that makes you like Jesus Christ is a good thing in your life. Anything that pulls you away from Christ and his likeness is bad in your life. And when Paul says that all things work together for good, he's not saying that tragedies and the heartaches of life are going to produce a better set of circumstances. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But God is not committed to making you healthy and wealthy and wise. He's committed to making you like Jesus Christ. That's it. And whatever it takes to get you more like Jesus is what he's going to allow in your life. So it is the providence of God that we learn that, that in the darkness, sometimes we learn more than we do in the light. Sometimes we gain more from sickness than health. We pray more when we're scared than when we're confident. I walked a mile with pleasure, she chattered all the way, but I was none the wiser for all she had to say. Then I walked a mile with sorrow, and never a word was said. Never a word, she said. 
But oh, the lessons I did learn when sorrow walked with me. What's God doing in your life? Is he making you more like Jesus Christ? Because he's predestined you to be like the Savior. And that is a long road for many of us to walk. And along the way, tragedies come, and there's a lot of setbacks. But God determined that that will of his will not be set aside. And everything that happens to us, the tragedies, the unexplained circumstances, even the stupid choices that we make, all of it is in the grist mill of God's loving purpose. He will not give up even when we want to give up. Consider the work of a great sculptor. He begins by choosing this rough, ugly chunk of marble. He intends to make from it a beautiful statue. And in his mind, he knows exactly what he will do. He predestines how to use that stone, how to chip away at it so that it becomes something of breathtaking beauty. And that determination guides everything that he does. And he cuts and he chips and he chisels. He will not harm that stone. He will not let anything else harm that stone. He will remain faithful until the task is finished. And in the end, what started as an unsightly stone will become something of great beauty. God is at work in your life as if you are a hunk of marble. And right now, you might be rough and uncut, but God is patiently chipping away at you. In fact, he's been chipping away maybe more than you want him to be lately. But remember this, he will never intentionally hurt you. And in the end, you're going to look like Jesus Christ. And I think that's our greatest problem with Romans 8, 28. Our good and God's good are not always the same. We want happiness and fulfillment and peace and long life. But God is at work in us and through us and by everything that happens to us to transform us into the image of his son. Does that include the worst thing that's ever happened to us? Yes. Does that include the thing which has hurt us deeply? Yes. Does that include the times in our lives when we were heartbroken? Yes. Does it include the times in our life where we sinned? Yes. Does it include those moments where we just doubted God? Yes. Does it include the times when we cursed him in his face? Yes. God is always at work. He is never deterred by us. There are no mistakes. There are no surprises. God does it even when we don't believe it. And that's what Paul means, I think, when he says, we know. We know. We know it because we know God. And that's what God has said. His word is trustworthy and he guarantees it. And his character rests upon it. We know it because we know him. We know it not by looking at the events of life, but we know it because we know God. We know it not by studying, 
Not by looking at the pattern in the cloth. But we know because we know the designer of the fabric. We know it because we've listened to the notes of the symphony. We know the composer of that music. And though sometimes it sounds dissonant, we trust the composer. Because there are so many things that we do not know. We don't know why babies die. We don't know why cars get in accidents or why planes crash or why families break up or why good people get sick. But this we do know, God is at work and God has not forgotten us. He is at work over the long haul. He is at work to make us like Jesus. Third, God is at work in believers. Notice the last phrase of verse 28. To those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. There's an important limitation to this text. This is true of Christians, followers of Jesus, and only Christians. Because God's purpose is to make his children one day like his son. Therefore, we can truly say that Romans 8, 28 kind of is an evangelistic verse. You've got two questions you've got to ask. Have you ever responded to the call of God in your life? Have you ever become part of God's saving purpose? You answer yes or no to those questions. There's no middle ground. And until you answer yes, Romans 8.28 isn't for you. God's at work over the long haul to make us like Jesus. So therefore, it's true of believers. Let me begin to land the plane this way. Let me share two tips for living in light of Romans 8.28. Number one is this. We must not try to explain the unexplainable. Sometimes in our zeal, we want to protect God and his reputation. And we try to explain why bad things happen, which is almost always a really bad idea. We're like little children looking into the face of an infinitely wise God. It is not possible for us to understand all that he does. It's enough that we love him and that we know that he is there. So let's just be honest and confess that it's, it's right at this point that we can do a lot of damage for the sake of the kingdom. Because in the end, it is not this verse which loses its credibility, but rather our feeble attempts to justify it and the mysterious ways of God I don't understand. Better to say nothing than speak about something we know nothing about. Number two, we must understand that God's values and our values are not the same, which is really like saying we have to understand that we will often not understand at all. I can't explain it. Let me be clear that we are not called to praise God for evil. We are not called to praise God for sin. We are not called to praise God to, for death. But we can praise God for the good that he can work even in those darkest hours of life. Because Romans 8.28 is not teaching us to call evil good or to simply smile through the tears and pretend everything's okay. It is teaching us that no matter what happens to me, no matter how terrible, no matter how unfair, 
God is there. He hasn't left us. His purposes are being worked out as much in the darkness as they are in the light. And if you think I've never seen darkness in my life, you're wrong. The story is told of a father whose son was killed in a terrible accident. He came to his pastor with great anger. And he said, where was God when my son died? And the pastor thought for a moment. He said, God was at the same place when your son died as he was when his son died. He watched his own son die. He knows what you're going through because he's been there. So we can say with the Apostle Paul, we know. Not because we see the answer. We know because we know him. And he knows what it's like to lose a son. He knows. And we know him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. These are our issues that are beyond the depth of a 30-minute explanation. But I pray that they would drive us deeper into your heart and into your word, that we might learn hope and that we might learn patience as we allow suffering to do its work, as we allow you, the great sculptor, to make from us a masterpiece that looks like Jesus. Grow our hope, grow our patience, that we might reflect a great God. In Jesus' name, amen.